Fiction, the Harvard University Conway Award for Teaching Writing, the Paula Jones Gardner Award for Poetry at Floating Bridge Press, and a Washington State Artist Trust Fellowship for her memoir in progress. That fall, Hemp's collection of poems published in 2011 was selected for the New Women's Voices series at Finishing Line Press. And she writes, produces, and hosts a radio program for KPTZ Public Radio called Welcome to another Yikes lecture. Some of my colleagues know here that every year I give a lecture that begins with Yikes, because the first year I taught here in 2004, my first um, lecture was called Yikes, a live audience. <laughs> and it was about giving readings, right, and how to, how to... So I figured, well, okay, I'll just keep saying Yikes about my, you know, in, in the beginning of my lectures, because it seems like the things we deal with as writers give us a kind of yikes feeling. How many felt a little bit of a yikes feeling in their class, you know, this week? My students are going, oh. <laughs> All right, so today is not really only about the yikes feeling, um, because, you know, the consequences of writing and all its attendant anxieties are in the yikes category, right? But today's talk, I'd like to help us all, myself included, go from the yikes to the, okay, I can do this. But, interestingly enough, we really can't have the, okay, I can do this, without the yikes. Because as artists, we kind of have to not have either or, but both and. And that's what I'm interested in today. So the idea of deadline is one of the limitations that, that writers have. I mean, how many of you get a little nervous about your, your deadlines? I can, I can sympathize with you. I had a deadline. I had to come and speak to you this morning. There are a lot of, um, uh, a lot of attendant anxieties that go with deadlines. But I like to think, the older I get anyway, I, I think of deadlines as less an anxiety, oddly enough, but as a, I would say, a room for possibility. Because deadlines, like you know, uh, any kind of deadline, gives us parameters um, for doing things. Oh, how do you like that? We're getting, how do you like that so far? You're getting the iTunes um, list. Okay. So, I could be saying yikes right now like this man. And um, there's this really cool installation piece in New York right now, or, or I think it's closed. It was Lincoln Center. I did not see it, but I read about it in the New York Times and wished that I could fly to Manhattan and see it. Um, a guy named Christian McClay. Oh! <laughs> it's just never-ending, isn't it? Um, a guy named Christian McClay, um, uh has a 24-hour installation where you go in and sit in a theater, and he shows you for 24 hours images of clocks. These are some of the images from that installation. From the, from the current slide. Ah, there we go. And as you sit there, apparently, according to the reviewer, 
you are mesmerized not only by the clocks, which are almost in every scene, but by the feeling of the odd passage of time, the unnatural and natural passage of time. You can't, you can't sit there without thinking of time. And the artist has put all these film images of people waiting for something to happen. And of course, we were, you know, like in the old movies when Gary Cooper was ready to go out at high noon, those terrible things. And as it said, the reviewer said that as he was getting closer to noon in the sitting in this installation, people got nervouser and nervouser because noon is the time where things happen. So this idea of time interests me because I kind of think of time as elastic. You know how when you're really writing a piece and you're totally in it, you're not thinking of the deadline because you're just completely beyond time. You're working, 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 and the whole afternoon goes by and you wake up and you think, oh gosh, I've gotten this adventure into this poem. I can't believe it. And three or four hours have passed by. So this idea of time and deadline being a constraint is kind of illusory. Because every artist has constraints. I had to get the digital clock in there for everybody. That's actually what's in the movie. I'm dying to see this installation. I would like to see it. Don't you wish we could see it here? You just pop in from your classes and then just sit for a little while, watch all the clocks, and then leave. Um, but I think of anything in terms of art or, or, um, or artisan work. This is a cobblestone from uh, Bergen, Norway, where I just was. And I had fun with my camera on this trip because I'm interested in how images actually um, can spur ideas not only in writing, but how images talk to each other. And we think of the constraints, limitations, bridles, harnesses, all those words that are limits for us can actually uh, be a container for spaciousness. And I think the painter's picture plane, this is a painting by Suzanne Wigan, a Faust New Mexico painter I particularly like. She um, paints in actually Italian Renaissance style with all the oils and does this special process. So things look very, very uh, Italian Renaissance. But what I like about her work too, this doesn't particularly show it, but she actually makes the frames for her paintings, makes the black wooden frames. So paintings too have limitations. Painters have limitations. I mean, a deadline can actually be a frame. I mean, and we can even see, like, Willem de Kooning, who slopped over the frame into the outside of the picture plane, which is what we're doing here in Iowa. We take a form and we slop over it sometimes. We can't, sometimes it's actually the framing, the, the cutting of the, of the picture that gives it the energy. We don't see her legs, but this particular uh, painting, de Kooning's, gives us a tremendous amount of energy. Then there's somebody like Bruegel, right, who has some very formal, formal intentions in this painting. And that kind of gets me to part two. I'm going to talk a little bit more about deadlines here before we go on to formal. But deadlines can act as a spaciousness for the following reasons. And I think these three things apply to the three parts of my talk today. The first part is the more pragmatic thing of deadline. When we have a deadline, we have accountability, right? Your teacher gave you an assignment yesterday. Or at least I gave my students an assignment yesterday. So they know they have to bring something back, right? Good, bad, and different doesn't matter. Accountability is part of it. And 
this will come up to play later, but the accountability part is really interesting. How many of you guys have writing partners or people who you write with? Okay. What does that do for, for, for your writing? Having it happen? It makes it happen. Very simple, doesn't it? It makes it happen. The accountability is really interesting. Why do you think that is? Who can, who can tell me why that is? I hope, but I use that it worked for me. Sam's all my 
esteemed friend and colleague has this phrase in a book of hers, uh, The Tools of the Writing Craft. She talks about traveling and having a travel guide who says, according to me, right, this is what where the Greek, uh, you know, I guess it was the Greek sculptures. It was in Greece, next. Mexico. And he would say, according to me, and then the history would spout out about it. And really what any lecture like this is, is kind of an according to me, what works for me. So take what works for you and forget the rest. So now, a deadline can be an elastic thing. And, and we have accountability, which can help you with that. And we can also have arbitrary rules about it. A deadline doesn't have to be this big, bad boogeyman at the end of the week. It can, you can say, all right, I'm going to make a rule for myself. No, I'm going to have the piece done to see Sally and Jenny. But I'm going to do one paragraph by Tuesday. Totally arbitrary. If it's really bad, I don't care. And you know what? I'm going to include in that paragraph the character I was writing in the last story. Totally arbitrary, but you're going to write it because you made up your mind. According to you, you said that was fine. And then you take action. Okay? So deadlines, this is the first part of lecture here, deadlines are really kind of illusory. And within them, you can do these three things. Writing friends, make arbitrary rules, and take action. To illustrate this better, however, we are going to go to more formal aspects. And in terms of this painting, what, is what are some of the choices Bruegel has made in this painting? Any choice, it doesn't matter. What? Point of view, where he's way up high, right? Interestingly enough, you'd think he, oh, this is the fall of Icarus, by the way, sorry. The fall of Icarus, right, point of view. Talk about that a little more, where, 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 where's the uh, star of the show? Legs. Yeah, his little white legs are like way, way, way down here in the right hand side of the corner. It's so cute, isn't it? I just love him. And his little feathers floating down. If you didn't know this was the fall of Icarus, you would never know he was there. Because you'd be looking at the farmer with his magnificent cloak where the, the, the diagonal lines of the furrows are reflecting the perpendicular lines of his coat. I mean, that's where the eye goes, not to poor little Icarus, right? Falling out of the sky because close to the sun, and the devil is once uh, Aunt Sexton's line flew safe, uh, safely into town, straight into town. So Bruegel has the limitations, the deadlines, if you will, of the picture plane, but he's also employed some other formal aspects that we don't even think about. He's employed three-dimensional perspective, which in the Renaissance they, were, they jumped into. He's decided to, if somebody said the point of view is from here, even in color, what's he chosen? Shiny, shocking red. There's a everything else. Yes, yes. So our attention goes right to the shoulder of this farmer. The man, not the myth, but the, but the man, right? What somebody said something else, too? Is what now? I said the same. You did. Okay. So, in art, there are formal decisions you can make in terms of composition, in terms of color, in terms of even paint, or what have you. But we can do that also in our art. Oh, I wanted to show you, too, my, uh, Anne Carindell's pots, a very uh, wonderful potter, whose um, early work 
was this kind of modeled um, glaze on her very, uh, their, their unique pot, uh, teapots. Okay? But she always, 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 no matter what she's doing, works with the form, do any of you throw pots? I don't, but I know people do, including Anne. And the form is you throw the bowl, the shell. Well, I guess that's what you call it. Okay? And then, in literature, there are many formal constraints that actually can let us fly within them. This is a villanelle, and perhaps Carol could enlighten us about the villanelle. Would you like to tell us about a villanelle? Um, I mean, basically it's just like on the Star Trek. That's good, yeah, for simplistic uh, uh, description. One structure of a, of, of a repeated form, it's 19 lines, uh, the middle lines rhyme, and then they're alternating rhymes. And listen to how he does it, and how interesting that the form itself, well, I'll let this reveal itself. Improvisation by Jared Carter. To improvise, first let your fingers stray across the keys like travelers in the snow. Each time you start, expect to lose your way. You'll find no staff to lean on, none to play among the drifts, the wind has left the rose. To improvise, first let your fingers stray beyond the path. Give up the need to say which way is right or what the dark stones show. Each time you start, expect to lose your way. And what the stillness keeps, do not betray. The one who listens is the one who knows. To improvise, first let your fingers stray. Out over emptiness is where things weigh the least. Go there, believe a current flows each time you start. Expect. Risk is the pilgrimage that cannot stay. The keys grow silent in their smooth repose. To improvise, first let your fingers stray. Each time you start, expect to lose your way. So he's taken a very structured form, which in its early days, by the way, was an arbitrary form. The French talked about uh, villanelles, and it isn't at all the structure that we see here. So you can see how, it, uh, again, elastic the idea of limitation is. To me, what's interesting about this poem is he's taking this really, really structured form, and what's happening in the poem? He's telling us to get lost. He's telling us to get lost. That's nice. I like that word. He's telling us to get lost, that we, we will lose our way, even within form. And really, unless we lose our way when we're writing, we don't find the form. We've talked about this in class, about writing our way in. So formal, formal ventures in writing are often like deadlines. Right? They can provide a space for us to run around in. I'm just interested in this whole thing, because what does it mean to be free? And this is all I want to be free, I want to be free. Yes. You have the right to choose your own form of slavery. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. What's your name? <laughs> oh, I like that. You have your right to choose your own form of slavery. That is freedom. I mean, it's so interesting because freedom, we have a whole group of laws in our country. I mean, there are laws and rules, and we tend to think of rules as bad, when in fact, sometimes, in writing anyway, when, 
when we have rules, sometimes we can even create our own. Anne Herondale, for example, has started to cut up her pots. She's cut them up. She doesn't make teapots anymore. No, tea, no spouts, no handles. She started cutting them up into these shapes that have reminiscent qualities of the uh, pod. That's the word she uses, pod, of, of what makes a, a vessel. And now they're starting to expand in different ways. And not only that, she's taken forms that actually are vessels and has split them up and cut them up. And this one, the other, I took this the other day with my phone just because I was just blown away. I was in her studio. Um, uh, she, she's had so much success lately. It's so great when a friend of yours comes to success. To, uh, she's just had a beautiful book published about her work. She's had um, all sorts of great things happen. And, and so she's feeling a sense of freedom now. But she said, I didn't know what to do with these two mugs after the last show. So what I did, she said, I found this was a, uh, she said this was a uh, stand for one of her other abstract pieces. She turned it on its end, and this cup just miraculously fit in it. Miraculously. Didn't change a thing. So then she looked, wow, that could be a way to display these new abstract mugs now. And then she put the other one on top. And it's just a, it's mind-blowingly beautiful. And not only from this angle, Quite extraordinary, but a little limitation. Like a little frame that wasn't even used as a frame, but just a stand for her others, has turned her into a whole attitude of possibility. So that was arbitrary. She just stuffed the mug in there. And speaking of arbitrary, I included this as a very old poem of mine, because I wanted to show you how I've had fun with arbitrariness. But we can decide anything in our work. Who's writing a story right now? Okay? Good. You can decide today, I am going to put a woman in my story, like today, I'm going to insert a woman applying a lipstick. Okay? Applying lipstick um, in every situation possible. At a grocery store, on a bus, um, you know, sitting at a dinner party at the table, just arbitrary, you can decide that. That might be, I mean, and suddenly your story would take on a different, a different narrative. Now, maybe you don't want her in the story, but even if you added her and took her out, what might happen? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. You can open it up. And I'm only saying that because these formal possibilities can help. I was really struggling with this Icarus poem. I actually threw it in here, too, because of the Icarus poem. I love those little legs. Yeah. Aren't they cute? I mean, the little legs are like, hey, and you, know, you wonder, it's probably naked. I mean, it's just a little white legs. <laughs> um, and, and, and I brought this poem because I was really struggling with this. This is a very old poem. But then a friend, poet friend of mine, said, well, Christine, why don't you just, like, Rhyme the third and fifth line. I said, what? You mean you can do that? You know, very young poet. I thought, wow, you can do that? Yeah, I just try it. Just rhyme the third and fifth line. Maybe it's just arbitrary. So when I did it, the whole poem came together for me. Not only that, like the woman with the lipstick, it opened up a whole new ending to the story, which I made up, of course. I made up a different ending for the end of the story. But if I read this poem out loud, nobody knows. 
How many of you have written a sonnet? structure would give you is a very different thing in the unfamiliar territory of precursors or blank verse or anyway, fun. Yes. But of course, 
that's part of the inspiration for Yeah, I was surprised to see her. I looked up Villanelle this morning, because I love the Villanelle. I've read several. And um, I didn't know that it didn't start like that form that we know it. It's it, one uh, said one place said something like, "Well, the French never really caught on to it as we know it, and it's a French word." Oh, the French! Gotta love them. They always are doing their own thing. Okay, let's see. Where are we? How are you doing so far? It's been kind of a breathless, you know, beginning to all this, but we're still here. And uh, oh, you know what I wanted to say. That, I don't know if you knew what was playing when you walked in the room, if your ears were open. Anybody know? Chopin. Very good. What is your name? <laughs> Joseph. It was Chopin. Chopin's Etudes. Okay? Now, interestingly enough, Chopin's Etudes, which we think of as, you know, part of the body of Chopin's great, great work, you know what they were proposed for? Exercising. facility with difficult things like crossing over the hand or cross the fingers crossing over each other and those of you who are professional pianists would probably be more than I about this. Imagine that. They were exercises just like we did here at home. Hmm, interesting. Writing a scene. Exercise. Look what it can look what it can grow into. Just made that up. It's, it's it's not really brilliant, but we'll just go with it. Okay. Somebody's beeping. Hello. Ah, is it time, Jack? Are you timing me? Okay. So the etudes are also, you know, formal, uh, a formal aspect with arbitrary rules. And yet, don't we love them? Don't you just? Oh. Oh, I thought that was it. I thought that was uh, Chopin coming back on again. I thought that's incredible how that happened. Oh, he's over now. We'll get him back though. We'll get Chopin back. But you know, I think in music and art and literature, it's all the same thing. We have the we have the deadlines, we have the outlines, and then we break them over and over and over again. This is an artist I particularly like, uh, Anne Michel Morales. And she has taken the formal ideas of writing and, of course, taken some of her writing in lists and put them right in her paintings. This is a, a painting called Vertebrae. And she's actually experimented with content with the words um, from her writing. Even some of it are peeking through here, see? And these are body parts. I particularly like the composition of it without having to know the words, and yet underneath, the words you don't even see, they inform the painting. And I would invite you to think about all the words you've thrown out of your poems and your stories, all the ones that were rejects. I'm sure there are some in your wastebaskets right now, back in the room, right? Drafts that you printed out you don't like. Those still inform the words that are on the page. They're still in your body memory, and they're still in that story or that poem or that memoir, even though you took them out. And that's 
think this is particularly lovely cross section. Of course, her her work comes from you know a tradition that started really with Robert Rauschenberg, who went around a studio in New York and collected stuff. And we all do this now, but in the older days they didn't. You know, I mean, he died recently, but he, he started this. He collected things on the just around the block of his New York studio, and then brought them back and made them. Things that he found, old photographs, newspapers, etc., umbrellas, flags, collage. And of course, this is familiar to us now, but it was really something when he first started doing this. And people said, he can't do that. It's just garbage. It's just garbage. What is he doing? Yet what interests me about <clears throat> his pieces are how disparate things click up against one another. He's making an arbitrary decision. Okay, I'm putting two umbrellas and American flags in the same picture plane. What does that do to the American flag? Sorry, Joe? It inhibits it. Inhibits it. Interesting word. There's no right or wrong here, but yeah, Christina. Makes it another Makes it another thing. Yeah, it does. Because it's now just more like a strike, isn't it? Uh-huh. And it divides the two umbrellas in a way, too. Other thoughts on that? It warps it. Dwarfs it. Dwarfs the flag. That's interesting. Yeah. Turns them into a spine. That's really interesting. Hadn't thought of that. And what are the metaphoric possibilities with the umbrellas? Joe? Uh, yellow's a... Ah, interesting. <laughs> yeah, very interesting. at it now, it says something different from when we were looking at it when, when, when Rauschenberg first created the piece, right? So what an incredibly alive thing that this arbitrariness in form has created so many, I mean, did you notice how different people had just little different ideas about those, how those objects were hitting against one another, right? If you put that woman applying lipstick in your story about the seals, what's going to happen then? Something happens. It's like I call it I call it flint striking granite. And in Norway this time I had fun. <laughs> A couple of my friends on Facebook recognized this image. I just had fun uh, making uh, images that again clicked together like Rauschenberg. This was also taken in Bergen, and I smacked them together because I thought it was fun. There's all these fish fish markets, you know, with just massive amounts of shrimp. And then all these men in Bergen seemed to be wearing pink and red pants. <laughs> I, don't, I really don't know what that was about. But I had to, I, it was just, I was obsessed. Pink pants and red pants. And my husband goes, there goes another one. Right? And he's Norwegian, but he wasn't wearing pink pants. Um, anyway, I just enjoy smacking those two thing, unlikely things together. 
and as I enjoy smacking these two images together. Uh, underwear sale in the Bergen shopping store, and this was the same fish market. And to me, okay, as an artist, I, and I include all of us in that, that word, visual or whatever, what interested me about it was not just the metaphorical qualities, but the, actually the, the um, uh, colors, you know? And, of course, you already can see the metaphorical ramifications of that picture. Um, but it's fun because suddenly it's not Bergen, Norway, everything we think of Bergen, Norway. Something else happens. And I don't need to ask you what your associations are because they're going ching, 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 right? Had I just shown you the picture of the mannequins, that would be one thing. Or just a picture of the fish. You say, oh, Norway, it's all about fish. Well, it was fun for me to see other juxtapositions, like the um, Viking ships with a violin scroll of the violin maker that we saw there. So, arbitrariness. In my class this week, we each brought a pit. lady, this lipstick lady, I've never used her, I just invented her now, but we put our seeds in our pieces yesterday, okay? And um, we put our seeds in our pieces in an unlikely way. We all, we rebelled, didn't we, slightly? I'm seeing the laughing, laughing, laughing. One of them, however, Jim, I'm not bring you up, did a really interesting thing with his green beans. He put his green beans in a piece about music and the difficulties of downloading a piece of music. Okay. And within the description of the music was actually the difficulty of downloading from iTunes or whatever he was doing. He brought in the bean as a memory. Really interesting approach. did for Jim was take his story to a very surprising new place, which we're hoping he's going to revise and bring back to us today. Okay? Arbitrariness. Putting a peach pit or an avocado seed. We've had a couple of avocado, beautiful avocado seed additions to the work this week, I might add. And the lemon seed made it into a recording of Mozart's horn concerto. There's Jim's beans. Jim, I looked for green bean seeds, and I think those are the ones. They're not really. They're different kinds. Sorry, they were so pretty. So, so 
Okay, so now you have the possibility of arbitrariness right here in this room. I would love for you in this painting. The writer Guy Davenport has written one of the most beautiful essays about this painting, about history and objects. Uh, if you want to join, just Google Guy Davenport and, um, and this painting, American Gothic. All right, what stuff is in this painting? Can you name some things? Yes, cameo. Is that what you'd call that? Choose three of them. And now we're going to write an arbitrary poem together. Because we're going from yikes to I can do that. Okay, let's, uh, we're going to write a poem we're going to call, we're going to call it, we're Americans, we're going to call it American Gothic. Okay? This is a new form you're going to learn right now. American Gothic. And we're going to write a poem right now, the craziest poem you've ever written in your life, that begins with the first letter of each line. And you're going to include those three objects in the poem. Are you ready? So, if we're going to, I'm going to do it with this word okay right now to show you how we do this. This is called the American Gothic, but I'm using the word okay. Oh! I said the the collar pin killed me. She's, I'm all of a sudden realizing I'm putting it in his voice. So this is a crossing. Yes, it is. She's older and wearing, yeah, let's have him talking about her. She's older and, and what? Gentless. Gentless? Chinless. Chinless. Oh, okay. She's older and chinless. Why? Oh, I'm cheating. Why? 
Did I make